Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello there, welcome to episode 33 of the Hellraiser Podcast. I'm Peter and this is Phil. Hello. Hello. And today we're bringing you another very special interview. Mm. This time it's with Barbie Wilde, who played the female Cenobite in Hellraiser 2. Yeah. And she's got a wonderful book out at the moment as well, which we'll tell you more about during the interview and after the interview. So without further ado, please enjoy. I didn't open the box! Didn't open the box. And what was it last time? Didn't know what the box was. And yet we do keep finding each other, don't we? So we're now here talking to Barbie Wilde, the female Cenobite in Hellraiser 2 and author of the wonderful new book, The Venus Complex. Hi, Barbie. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you guys? Very well. Yes, this is a slight second start or a false start for those uh, listeners. Don't need to know that, but uh, there we are. Yeah, Barbie's been very patient with us with yeah. our technical problems. Ridiculous so thank computer you so much that we're for working that. with. But anyway, <laughs> we're now going to start again. So, Barbie, could you just tell us a bit how you first got involved in the project, the Hellraiser 2 project? Well, I... I... Basically, I think it's because of my mime training. I'm not quite sure why I was asked to go to the audition for the female Cenobite, but I was. And, um, you know, I, I, who knows what the criteria was? I mean, I, I knew what a Cenobite was because Tony Randall, who I met, and basically we just had a chat, and he said, oh, that's a word that, that Clive has um, made up. Mm. And I contradicted him, which is probably not the smartest thing to do <laughs> when you're going to an audition. I went, no, actually, it's, I looked it up in the dictionary, and it means <laughs> a member of an order. But I didn't even want to go to the audition in the first place because I found the film so disturbing. And for some reason, I got it into my head that they wanted me for the part of the chatterer. Mm. And, and I found that was the scariest character to me because I thought Pinhead was quite sexy and <laughs> the other characters are like really kind of grotesque. But the chatterer was the one that really disturbed me. So I thought and also I have a problem with mask work. I'd done some mask work in a, a God, Godly and Cream commercial and they just had made the mask and I had to pull it over my head and the smell of chemicals just almost knocked me uh, out yeah. and then I had to do a robotic tango after that <laughs> so <laughs> I just thought I don't like this yeah. so but I went along anyway because a friend of mine from Bolton in Lancaster said oh go on Barbie you know you'll be writing books about you in 20 years Barbie Wild Queen of the Bee movies you know <laughs> so I thought oh well what you know what have I got to lose and so I went and I don't know who knows, it could be just because I, I know that people like to think of some kind of romantic idea about why I got the part, but it could be just as prosaic as my measurements were the same as Grace Kirby, who originally played the female Cenobite, which doesn't sound very, you know, exciting or adventurous. But I mean, these are the practicalities of the movie business. I know that the other guys like Doug and Nico and and Simon had worked with Clive before in theater before he even did did the first film, so that's why they and of course Grace is his cousin. Yeah. yeah. So I think um, uh, it's funny because I remember um, uh, Claire saying that you know he was re Clive really wanted her to be play the part of Julie, and I totally understand having seen Claire on stage. She is a powerhouse, and mm-hmm. you know Ashley you know, was from America and stuff, and, and got her part that way. But you know it, it was just a matter of going to the audition. Yeah, right. and did you feel any any pressure or anything for sort of taking over the role from another actor, or how did you feel no, about that? I- I don't think you think that. I mean, being a bit of a, you know, <laughs> you think, oh, well, I think I've got more lines than her. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> it sounds pathetic, but that's how actors think. But no, I, d- I don't think so. I mean, most of the films I've been in have been sequels. Uh, mm. But this is the first one where I actually played, uh, you know, a character. But she is kind of a different female Cenobite because although the costume might be the same, mm. um, I think they did make some slight alterations to it and of course my jewelry that was holding out my throat flaps or whatever (laughs) my wonderful throat wound which of course caused much merriment to all the other cenobites um uh was slightly different and my makeup design was different obviously because my face is very different than than Mm. than grace's when you see a picture of her on say IMDb. I mean, she looks like a very different person, beautiful, very different person than than 
me. (laughs) And what was the atmosphere like on set when you were making the film? It was great, I think, because we were all trying to keep our our uh, spirits up. Um, I think that it, it having all this prosthetic makeup and sitting there for hours and hours, you do become a little bit crazed. Mm, and yeah. so <laughs> we had, there have some some videotape has come up. It's on YouTube. I think one of the uh, Roy or Jeff took um, some videotape of the Cenobites, and I was singing. Bye bye, my liver hair from Cabaret. <laughs> Simon was doing the can can, and there was Doug in just his, you know, leotard. And, and there was Nick just laughing as he does. <laughs> and, you know, because we all just kind of keep our, our spirits up. Because if you think about sitting in a chair for four hours, mm-hmm. or in my case, I think it's longer for, for Doug, and certainly for Ken Cranham, it was six hours. Wow. His channered Cenobite makeup on. It is very tiring, boring. Of course, it was all really early morning calls, and that gets you cranky. Mm. And then, of course, everybody else pootled off, and we had to stay behind and get our makeup peeled off. Mm, yeah. You know, because that takes an hour. No one thinks about that. Oh, we can all just go home. No, actually, you have to come and sit down and get unlaced from your costume and the makeup peeled off. So with um, some kind of stuff. And the first time it came off, I, my skin was almost red. Oh, it was yeah. really pink. And I said, oh, my skin's so pink. And they went, yeah, that's oxygen starvation. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> so, you know, but for the most part, it was all, I mean, the favorite, one of the favorite collective nouns for actors is they always say it's a whinge of actors and yes you Mm -hmm. have a tendency to complain a little bit but for the most part you know it's complaining when you're under some pretty terrible um i'm not saying with this picture but you know most of the time actors are unbelievably um you know good good spirits about being uncomfortable situations i i was going out with a guy who who was doing this stunt. I mean, he's just an actor, but he did this stunt of diving into a pond in the freezing cold and they had to break the ice. And, oh, it doesn't, he's from Australia, so, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, I just jumped in again, you know. And <laughs> it's, it is the thing because we want to be on screen, so we will just continue on and try and be as cheerful about it as possible. So it was a great atmosphere because everybody was so funny and adorable. And, and you, you said, oh, sorry, go on. No, no, I was just going to say, unlike the, our images of, you know, being demons from hell, you know, you sort of think, oh, were they ripping each other's skins off? But no. Well, that's no. the thing. We're, since, we, since we've actually met, you know, all the people and interviewed people in the film, everyone's yeah. so lovely and so <laughs> nice and just the complete opposite of the image. No, it's it's hilarious, isn't it? You know, you sort of you get a, a bit scared meeting some actors, and then you just say, "This this person is the most hilarious person I've ever met." <laughs> you know, there was when I first met um, Claire Higgins, I was I was a bit, "Hey, I you know can be starstruck as the next person." I adore her. I've seen her on stage, and but she was like, "Oh, darling, let's go to the bar." You know. <laughs> <laughs> Icons of horror, you know, and she was just really funny and very smart and, you know, fierce about her work and stuff. And and uh, as all the, all my fellow Cenobites and, and Ashley and Ken and Claire have been. So, yeah, they are really lovely, lovely people. It's very rare to meet a complete poo. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> just, I have met a couple, but, you know. Obviously, the, the the word I would have probably used wouldn't begin with a P. It'd probably begin with something else. But no, <laughs> for the most part, I think most actors have to get be very friendly with each other because you're constantly thrown into new situations with new people every film you're at. Mm. And that's why it's so great that we're all still mates and we meet each other at conventions and stuff because for the most part, people move on obviously, mm, yeah. but you still keep in touch with everybody, but you have to be nice because otherwise you just have a miserable time because, uh, you know, some people might be, oh, I have to be in Pennsylvania tomorrow to, to meet a whole different cast of people. Yeah. And so that's why you have to be sort of polite and mm-hmm. nice. So on that note, on talking about conventions, how, how long was it after you made the film that you realised how big the whole Hellraiser thing was, was becoming? 
I had no idea for years and years. And it's, it's funny because Doug was telling me at the first convention he was at, and he was, they basically just paid for him to come and he said, you know, he's met some people and, you know, it was a very different thing than it is now. Um, but now it was, I, I think I went to my first one just last, you know, in the last, you know, 2005 or something like that. And uh, the, the convention thing had been going great guns for at least 10, 15 years before that. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, Doug actually started going to conventions quite soon afterwards. But I just had no idea that people were, were interested in what basically was a, a low-budget British movie. <laughs> yeah. You know, when looking at it, you know, I just went on to the next gig, if you like. And, yeah. uh, of course, I did sort of keep in touch with, with, you know, I met Clive a few times afterwards and Pete Atkins and Nico um, because uh, there were a few signings and things like that and screenings and stuff. But uh, I had no idea, especially when I went to my first American convention. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that Hellraiser was so, had such a huge following and that eight films had been made. and <laughs> Nine now. But nine now, yeah. Nine, yeah. Yes, let's start about that one, the better. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. We've had to talk about that one already. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's move on swiftly. Have yeah. you kept up with the films then? Have you watched all of the sequels? No, I haven't. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'd, I think the one I wouldn't mind seeing is the third one because Doug said that was the one where things changed for him. Um, he went to America to film it and people suddenly were taking notice of his character in a way and giving him some sort of respect as a, as a character. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying that obviously Clive and everybody did in in England but it was so he said it was a real sea change as to how he was regarded because we were just sort of like the the baddies who had about 10 minutes screen time and I Mm. think the third one was was great for him my personal favorite of what I've seen is the first one Mm. I think that one although a lot of people have said the second one is because they probably go into hell and stuff but I just love you know the Julia character's sexual Mm, obsession you know it's just killing guys so your lover can get his skin back that, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. you have to admire that kind of dedication yeah well exactly <laughs> did you speak to clive much about it when when you were making the film about the he, whole mythology well he was actually i think he didn't want to step on tony's toes which is fair enough he had directed the first one uh, he came on set a couple of times he was the executive producer i think but it that time he was, I think he was gearing up for the night for Nightbreed, which was going to be in a couple of years and stuff. And he was writing, and so I didn't see him much after that. And I think he was writing Weave World or something at the time. I don't know his own timeline, but no, I didn't actually have a chance to to talk to him. And and when I when I was my first day on set, I asked Tony because we didn't have any rehearsal. All right. Uh, no, no, it's just I was on set and I came in and said, what's my motivation? And he said, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. Because, you know, like I said, it was a low budget film. It wasn't mm-hmm. like we were that I can remember. I mean, maybe we did have some rehearsals, but I don't remember ever coming in to rehearse without makeup or anything. It was just it was right after Christmas. My plane had been delayed. I'd been visiting my folks in the States and my plane had been delayed 24 hours. So I went straight from the airport into makeup. Wow. <laughs> so I think everybody was a bit annoyed. Hence his short little comment. You're dead. That's it. <laughs> Walking in. You know, so that that was the um um sort of basis of of my thing there was no talk of the mythology or anything like that did you feel um when you'd done the film and did you hear about them doing a third one did you think maybe you could be in one of the other ones or would you have wanted to be or i i would have loved to but i think that that it had everything had moved to the states yeah and i think the only person they brought over was nick i'm sorry doug yeah yeah so I, th- I I sort of just went, well, that's showbiz, you yeah, know? Yeah. And also, to be perfectly frank, I think that 
um, I really didn't enjoy the makeup process yes. and and I probably made that a little bit too clear <laughs> you know I'm really unhappy why can't I talk you know um so it it was that I think they thought hiring a mime artist would mean I had some kind of you know deep well of patience <laughs> that I actually don't have you know because it can, be, it can be a big deal though can't it? I mean I think I think it was Alan Cumming who was in the X-Men film and he said He's not going to be in anymore because he just can't stand it. No. And he's well, painted in blue pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting. It is a very suffocating feeling yeah. because especially when, you know, your makeup is glued to your skin yeah. and there's no um, uh, air. It's sort of like the Shirley Eaton moment in Goldfinger, you know. <laughs> my God, I'm completely covered. I'm going to die. The only thing that can breathe is my eyeballs, you know. <laughs> And poor Doug didn't even have that. I mean, he had yeah. fake lenses in. I mean, um, so no, it is a very uncomfortable thing. There was a, a tale. I'm not sure who the actor was, but somebody was doing um, a makeup test, and you, you know, you have to get your head cast, and they put a a uh, skull cap on you, and then they cover your head with some kind of alginate, mm. which means you your head is cast, and then they cover that with plaster of uh, bandages, which harden. Mm. So you're there, and you can't see, and you can hardly hear, and somebody is, you know, clearing your passages to your nose. I thought I'd get straws up my nose or something, but they don't do that. And that's a very panic. There was a moment I panicked, and they said, it's okay, you can still breathe, just breathe. Because I did, I did think that they'd covered up my... You know, I started struggling yeah. with stuff. Uh, one person was going through the process, and he screamed. He screamed, ran around, and ripped it all off. <laughs> and so I don't know which actor that was. I don't think it, it wasn't one of the Cenobites. So they had to do him one half of his head and then the other half of his head. Right, yeah. And so that's, you know, people have a problem with it. It's a real... It's understandable, I think. Oh, it, well, if you're claustrophobic, it's yeah. a real bummer. <laughs> yeah, it looks horrible. I mean, when I've seen plenty of making of footage of, of many films and every time you see actors doing that, it just looks really bad. So you wouldn't want to do it. I know. I mean, I think John, um, John Hurt, who did The Elephant Man, I think he mm. was in the chair like 10 hours, 12 hours or something. Mm. I honestly don't know how you would do that without getting deep vein thrombosis or something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And um, a, f a friend of mine was the monster in Extra, mm. Tim, right. Dry yeah, Tim Dry, and he had to, his casting, I think they had to do it in sections, but they, they said, he actually suggested this because they thought another actor was going to play the part. Oh, why don't I just sort of come in, oh, God, how do I describe this? He was actually on his back on his legs and hands so his basically right. his head was facing the sky and they put the head the monster head on the back of his head and so when he crawled he looked very insectile right okay but he had to do the body cast in that position right which is not a joke no. <laughs> <laughs> so, luckily he was very lithe and muscular <laughs> it's an amazing but, it's an amazing um when you talk to people who are actually there um because you think well you know you're doing your work and you're in this incredible uncomfortable situation and then but then it must be hard to focus on the fact that it is forever what you've done in this film and it has such a it can have such a legacy like hellraiser has you know people uh, uh, cannot get over these films. They love them so much, you know. And you were thinking, God, on that day I was so miserable and I was so down or whatever. I was yeah. covered in makeup. Well, I think also it's like you come in at six and then you don't get in front of the camera until six in the evening or something yeah. and you're hanging around in this sort of oxygen-sucking thing. But I don't want to give the impression that I hated every minute of it. I didn't because, like I said, we kept each other's spirits up yeah, and it's quite fun. a lively atmosphere back behind the scenes but no it is it's a funny thing one has to keep in mind of course but you know making films again is like a two three month process and it's hard to keep thinking okay how is this going to look unless you're the director and you see the rushes every day yeah and stuff you don't really you know you say oh my god is that what we all looked like when you see the final thing <laughs> yeah. you said earlier on about how you, the first film scared you quite a lot did you have any idea of how much more the second one was ha had in it? The the gory effects and all the blood that was in the second one? Um, well, you know, when you read it, 
off the page, you know, you can say, oh, a writhing figure under a sheet covered in blood or something. And then you see it, <laughs> you know, and of course it's going to have much more visceral impact on mm-hmm. you. Um, no, it, it's funny because my, my lawyer at the time, I can't quite understand why, but he said, oh, I want to arrange a, a screening of your movie um, for a children's cancer charity <laughs> <laughs> for Halloween and stuff. And so it was there. But he came out and he said, oh, my God. And he was like white to the lips after he saw it. <laughs> but he still went ahead with it. You know, and, and I think they made some money out of it, which was fantastic. But um, for the charity. Yeah. It, it, you know, Hellbound is a very powerful film. And in many ways, it's interesting because it is a direct timeline sequel to the second one mm. it's like a few hours later mm. and it's sort of like quantum of solace to casino royale <laughs> if you like you know and so it, it sort of actually tells the tale even even more so you get to know these characters and stuff i think three was quite a different kettle yes, of yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and from from well from five onwards they're they're each of them is their own separate story they're nothing to do with each other yeah, I, I heard rumors. I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I understand that a lot of the scripts were just horror movies. And then they went, oh, let's put some pinhead Hellraiser elements yeah, in. We've, we've heard the same thing, at least two of them, definitely. You know, because I'm, I'm actually working with some guys. I don't know if you know them. Eric Gross of the followers of the Pandorics. Oh, yeah. Yes, we've, we've seen some things them. online about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you if you go to my website, barbiewell.com, <laughs> you'll see that I've actually written a story about a female Cenobite that's kind of a continuation of the story that I wrote for the Hellbound Hearts anthology. Yeah, I've read it. I, I thought yeah. it was fantastic. Which is a perfect time to move on to talk about that then. So oh, you yes. did indeed write this story, Sister Celise, for the Hellbound Hearts anthology yes. book, as you said. Yeah. Um, how did that come about then? Well, that was, uh, I'd done an interview with Paul Kane for the Hellraiser films and their legacy book that he wrote. Mm-hmm. And um, which is, you know, even Clive says, there's only one expert on the Hellraiser films and that really is Paul Kane. And, um, and so uh, when we came to do, he came to do the anthology, he knew I was writing and doing some working on stuff. So he said, listen, I'd love you to come up with a story. And I said, but I don't really write horror stories. And he said, I'll give it a go because you were the female Cenobite. It would be really interesting to have a story from a female perspective. Mm. So I thought, oh, this isn't going to work. And then I thought, oh, what about, mm. And so I actually came up with the idea in about a week. Uh-huh. And the story, did some research, and then the story took about a week. I've never written anything again that quickly. Mm-hmm. And so it really was like an outpouring of wow. uh, filth or whatever, <laughs> whatever you think. I mean, it was just, you know, I just tuned into this woman's sexual frustration, you know, as a nun and as never wanting to, never being able to do what she ever wanted to do in her life. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, wow, that would be interesting. And and just took it on from there. I mean, I sort of created her character and then she led me a very interesting mm-hmm. journey. And so, um, and then, you know, recently, um, the guys at the follower of the Pandorics said, would you like to design your own Pandoric box? And, uh, which I did basing it on some of the elements of, of Sister Celise. Mm. And, and then I sort of did a further adventure story, which is on the website. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. I really, really enjoyed it. And the uh, the original Sister Celise story is one of my absolute favourites in the book. Fantastic. Oh, yeah, oh thank you. It. Yeah, I loved it. It was good. Yeah. So was that the first horror story that you wrote then? Yes. Wow, that's and, amazing. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, it's it's strange because, of course, then... Um, who was the next one? It was... Uh, I think it was Dean Drinkle asked me to do a phobophobia, a, a, a phobia story. Yeah. And then somebody else said, oh, can you do a mutant story? And then Paul Kane came back again and said, ooh, can you write a body horror <laughs> And mm-hmm. so that became Uranophobia, American Mutant, Hands of Dominion, and um, Polyp. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Which has to be the most disgusting thing I've ever written in my life. <laughs> Um, and so, I mean, eventually I would like to get a collection of my short horror stories together because mm. I've just written another one for Dean and that's going to be the 
for the Demologia Biblica. Oh, yeah. Basically a Bible of demons. And then another one he's doing, which is a monster one. And then I've got one, finally, a crime story coming out um, in the Screaming Book of Crime, edited by Johnny Maines. That's going to happen at the end of the year. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, so because the book I've written... <laughs> um, has been, you know, been a lot of reviews have come from the horror press because of my history. And they call it a horror novel. And I don't know if you guys have, have read the book. Mm, yeah. But, I mean, to me, it's it's just pure crime psychological sort of thing. But a lot of people regard it as, as real-life horror. But I might be getting ahead of myself. But, um, no, well, let's move on to, to, uh, to the Venus Complex then. Um, so at some point you decided that you'd like to have a go writing a full-length novel. Is that how it worked, or did it start as a short story and then become bigger? Well, basically what, what happened is I've, I've been writing ever since I can remember. I love writing, and it's always been little doodles and things. And then I've got a, one thing that I never finished, which was um, the, a story called Death of a Dominatrix, which was a book about a plucky female detective investigating the death of a dominatrix but that never worked. I thought, oh gosh you know and then i thought what is my real fascination it's always been with serial killers mm. so i started writing a book about a plucky forensic psychologist who is on this serial killer case and i decided to set it in syracuse new york because i knew i wanted to be in america and i'd gone to university there so I thought, well, this is, you know, a place I'm I'm fairly well aware of. And so I'll set it there. And then I thought this is like I was about a third of the way through. And I thought, oh, no, this is like every other book I've read about this subject. And what do I what am I really interested in is the why. Mm. Why do these guys do it? Well, mostly guys do this. And that's when I, I sort of had to start all over again. So this happened before. Hellbound Hearts. This it happened before Sister Celise. This because right. I wasn't I wasn't working on this book every day. You know, I was doing other things, mm. and so <clears throat> it it did take a while to finish. Everyone says it always takes a while to finish your first book, but um, it was uh, difficult to to sell it as well because it's it's um, to find the right publisher who would understand mm. it. Mm. You know, because it is highly erotic as well, because it is just from his viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. And you can't tell me that serial killers don't think about sex. <laughs> you, know, they, mm. you know, it's all about the violence thing and in a lot of books. And I thought that's, I wanted to be as realistic as possible. I interviewed a homicide detective in New York City. I've interviewed forensic psychologists. I wanted it to be as truthful as possible. Mm. Well, it does certainly feel very real. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, one one person who writes for horror magazines said, I found this one of the more disturbing books that I've ever read. And I, he said, that's a compliment. It's a compliment. But I found it a very difficult read. And I went, oh, wow, really? You know, but, you know, it's it's not a conventional horror book because there aren't heads are not being popped off and eyeballs are zapped onto plates. And, yeah, you but know, it, it, but yet the the content and the subject matter is is very horrific especially for a lot of people who don't read that sort of thing, usually. Yeah, yeah. Well, also because I go into not only what he does, but also his his dreams. I mean, he yeah. is t tormented by some really nasty dreams. Mm -hmm. And um, it is th these these violent fantasies and things like this. And yet, at the same time, I think, you know, he is a regular guy. He's an art history professor. He's He loves art. You know, he's he is lives in the world and he could be teaching, you know, kids, that friends of ours and things yeah, like that. that. That is what's scary. That's what makes it a horror story for me. The, the fact that it could be anyone that you meet in the street. Yeah. Well, see, I'm fairly paranoid myself. <laughs> so I thought, OK, if I was going to be a serial killer, I, this is how I would, you know, I wouldn't, you know, obviously the whole sexual angle is difficult to think about as a woman. And that's what a lot of male interviews have said how do you know this stuff um <laughs> but i thought okay well i would definitely want to get rid of you know this is before a lot of these csi programs and stuff became really popular you know it's like this idea of okay if i do this i want to make sure i don't want to get caught mm, yeah 
And when I interviewed my my police inspector, uh, my detective in in New York, he said, well, uh, this guy was so stupid, he got caught. He only killed two people, and then he got caught because he was just leaving his fingerprints everywhere. Mm. And I went, gosh, doesn't he watch Law and Order? Or <laughs> 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 uh, like me? <laughs> doesn't everybody just watch TV sh- crime TV shows? So um, that was a thing. I mean, I think that's – and it's been nice to see that the – the um, reviews have picked up on on the reality of it, and and also the fact that he, it is not just uh, following this guy doing this, but he has his his opinions mm, yeah. about stuff, yeah. and and whether you agree with them or not, they're they're deeply thought out, and so it's not just a book about a guy stalking women and killing them. It's also about you know what he he looks at politics and he looks at christmas and he looks at art and academia and he dissects it all and um yeah i find i found it sort of strangely a, a really easy read from that point of view because it was just nice to sort of nice is probably the wrong word to be <laughs> in his head and just to sort of see these different aspects of this guy um for me, I sort of read it very quickly. Well, I, I, me too, I couldn't put it down yeah. at all. It was a real oh. page turner. Oh, brilliant. Oh, that's good. We, we haven't said yet. We both really enjoyed oh, yeah. it. We thought it was <laughs> We both really it was, loved yeah. it. Oh, that's great. Thank you very much. No, it's, it's, it's funny because somebody said, oh, I just love the fact you have really short chapters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's yeah. a, a plus. Well, the, yeah. but it does make a difference. It makes a difference psychologically because if you've got really long chapters that are really dense, it, it does sometimes put you off. But if you think, oh, I'll just read another couple because they're only short. <laughs> well, that, I think that is, that is part of it. It's interesting, isn't it? But also one has to remember he is, it, this is part of his diaries. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Yeah. But I've I, I read a lot of books about crime, nonfiction and fiction, and um, I've always been of the opinion to keep it simple and straight and muscular and and <clears throat> as much as you can. One of my favorite writers is Ernest Hemingway, which is unusual for a woman to oh, he was this male chauvinist. Well, actually, he was also a really great writer. Mm. I don't know about his, you know, how he treated women in his life, but he wrote some great novels and they were very, the description was just so short. And I thought, that's great because the thing I hate about reading a book is like, all of a sudden you come across a character and you go, who's this? Mm. And then you have to go back and figure figure out yeah. who what that was. I mean, I, the, a lot of writers I admire sometimes do that, and I just go, oh, no, he's put a character in, and I can't follow what I have to go back, <laughs> and it's breaking my concentration. So I tried hard not to do do it with... with yeah, the, yeah the, I, think, I think that really comes across, because it, 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 that, that's what I mean about it being an easy read. It's very strong. All the elements are very sort of strongly placed in the book, and I always knew exactly where I was and where it was going. Uh, and it was. I didn't uh, know where it was going. Well, not where it was going, <laughs> but um, in terms of that, I, I felt very comfortable reading yes. it all the way through. It was a um, really, really great story. Um, and do, w- when you were writing it, were were you at all writing it to shock people, or, or was it? A, is this a kind of level of violence that you're comfortable with? <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of like a uh, when did you stop beating your wife? Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't write it to shock people. No, no. And and am I comfortable with that level of violence? Uh, no. But here's the thing. I think when you create a character, I created Michael. He's an art history professor. He's mm-hmm. got issues. He's got yeah. problems. Da da da. He hated his wife. Uh, suicidal. Uh, and then okay, what would Michael do? And mm-hmm. then if Michael was going to do this, what would he do? But a lot of times I would just, it, it's very hard to explain this process, you know, and how he, I managed to write this stuff considering it's from a viewpoint of a man who's very disturbed. And I'd like to think I'm a pretty well-balanced mm. female creature. But, mm-hmm. you know, no, it's, it's, it, it's not like I wanted to shock people. I just wanted to be truthful with them. Was there any, any moment where you've, considered censoring yourself and you thought maybe that is a bit too much well you know it's funny people ask me that question and I go how could I do that (laughs) I would be betraying Michael and but also I thought you know if I get an editor that you know if I get a publisher they're gonna say whoa you can't do that (laughs) and I have to say you know all respect to to Cheryl at, at Comet Press you know she's right that's right we're gonna publish your book (laughs) <laughs> and it was like really you don't you don't want to 
No, it's great. It's fabulous. You know, <laughs> oh, right. Okay. And I thought that was very encouraged by that because I thought, oh, a woman is going to be reading this. I wonder what, you know, because I, all the people who'd read the book after I finished it, you know, my ideal readers are both men, um, using the phrase that Stephen King uses, you know, if you, you have somebody who can, you can take criticism from yeah, and, and you give them the book and they, and, and if they come back with something, you've got to listen to that. You might disagree with it, but you know, they're called ideal readers. Mm. And so I thought this is interesting. So it's going to be a woman who's going to be reading this and deciding on whether she wants to publish this book or not. And she was totally enthusiastic and said, right, this is great. And never said anything about any of the content, wow. which I thought was really interesting. Mm. And um, and a lot of women have read it, and there's only been one woman. One of my reviews on, on Amazon, uh, all it said was, sick. This book pushes <laughs> the boundaries of decency. I only bought it because my boyfriend was reading it. And I... <laughs> <laughs> and it's one star. Oh no! And, that's um, great. This this book pushes the boundaries of decency. That could be on the the poster for it. That's that's great. <laughs> this is it because, funnily enough, I was talking to a you know a writer friend of mine, and he said that's brilliant. <laughs> if you have too many five star reviews, people look at that very suspiciously. Yeah. The fact that you've got one and it's so hilariously good. You know, because it is a bit sick, this book, you know, so it... And that's that's not a bad review for someone who enjoys that sort of subject material either. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and But it's funny because, you know, one of the reviewers said, how did she do her research? And another one said, <laughs> said you know, um, I worry about Barbie, you know. <laughs> it's a funny but, point of view that people come out with that you, you can't be a well-balanced person and write yeah. something like that. It's a strange exactly. sort of viewpoint, really. And, and, and it's funny because I remember reading about Thomas Harris after he wrote The Red Dragon, mm. which is a book I really, really rate because... Mm, it's, yeah, it's very good. Yeah, because he shows the background of mm. Francis Dollarhide. And, mm. of course, in I think in both films you don't really see it. Mm. And that, to me, is what I always want to say, is why did this person come out this way? What caused that person to do it? I mean, Ted Bundy has always said it was the lacks of his life rather than what happened to him mm. that made him turn into a serial killer. But to me, the Thomas Harris thing I thought was brilliantly written. And, you know, one writer actually accused him, said, oh, you seem quite sympathetic of Francis Dollarhide because, you know, you write so sympathetically of your background. You must have a little bit of, you know, mm. psychopath in you. And he never did another interview. Because he was really, you know, the fact is, is that for what I believe is that Thomas Harris was a crime reporter. So, of course, he knows how this works. But um, no, I mean, that that's it. One has to be, I suppose, part of me was maybe a little um, not concerned. But the fact is, what are people going to think of me? And I know that, you know, there are certain people like in my family and stuff like that. Don't read the book. You can buy the book, but I don't want you to read the book. <laughs> you know, and it, it is because you, your relationships with them could change, you know, but mm. my friends who know me just go, well, wow, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think anything that I've ever written that's a bit gross like that, with my parents just be like oh what's wrong with you they yeah listen listen to a couple of minutes of it and then just go oh, I'm well right. i've done some th- yeah i've done some things that i've told my mum not to read or to come and see <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> absolutely <clears throat> oh well no i mean i just i you know would can never imagine that my parents would have enjoyed hellraiser <laughs> yeah i'm sure they never saw it i think they did see death wish three um <laughs> because they love charles bronson but even that would have been a bit too violent. Yeah, that's a, that's that's very much um, that's a bit much for a lot of people. That one there. Now there's rape and yeah. you know Gatling guns and you know people on fire jumping off of buildings. It's pretty. That's real life horror. Yeah. Um, but um, well, as is my book, I suppose, because there's nothing supernatural about my killer. And I think you know I was watching Sinister the other day. And that really is a disturbing film. Mm, mm. Um, even though I, I, at the very beginning of the film, um, I thought, I really think this guy deserves to die. Because he's wandering around in the dark, thinking someone's in his house with a baseball bat. <laughs> okay, get your family into a room, 
Call the police. Turn on the light. <laughs> Bit of a clue there. You see, I just, you know, one of my friends was saying it might have been a more interesting film if he had done all that. But as soon as it turned into Supernatural, I totally relaxed. Right, yeah. It's yeah. funny because I thought, oh, oh, it's Supernatural. Oh, it's not as scary then. <laughs> yeah. Because to me, that you know, one of my short stories, Urinophobia, is a, she, a woman who is afraid of the sky, if you like, but she becomes a shut-in. But her greatest fear, really, is home invasion. Right, yeah. And, and that's what, to me, I thought that's what, in many ways, this this um, sinister was about. All these families, you know, and, and uh, somebody is in, in their home, you know, doing horrible things to them. But as soon as it became sort of, Supernatural. I, I I didn't lose interest, but I just thought, oh, okay, that's not so scary then. Yeah, I mean, the, I think with the, even with the original Hellraiser, the, uh, the the whole thing of of Julia picking these guys up and taking them home and then battering them to death, you know, that that's so yeah. terrifying if you actually think about that situation and just completely disregard all the supernatural stuff. I mean, yeah. mm, hey, you know, she might have just had it all in her mind and she yeah. was just taking guys home and battering them to death, and that's oh, terrifying. Know. It's it's so to to me that that her of sexual obsession, which I thought was portrayed brilliantly in the film, mm. with Clive's direction and with her acting, was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, you know, and and I liked that, and and um, you know the idea, but the whole idea about these these creatures coming to show you, you know, the ultimate in sensation. Mm. Interesting. It sounds like it'd be fun, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's not, as Frank finds out to his cost. You know, and it, it is. You know, with any anything. I mean, you. you there is never. I've, I find that you know, doing my research on serial killers and stuff, they have this scripted fantasy in their head, and then they try and, you know, recreate it in real life. But mm. it's never as good. And even if it is, they get another scripted fantasy, and they try and get more. That's why they end up getting caught. Yeah. Because in the end, um, or some of them do, actually. What am I saying? Well, yeah. <laughs> Most of them don't. I mean, Ted Bundy actually just lost it in the end, and mm. he had no self-preservation because he was just going in and, you know, wildly killing people and stuff in, in sororities. But it was it, he'd lost his... So that sounds wrong to say his sense of purpose or he'd, he'd just gone off because nothing was going to satisfy him anymore. Mm, absolutely. So. And you can, I mean, you can really see in your book that, you know, to maintain your fantasies or the things that are kind of driving you or actually kind of demonizing your brain and maintain, you know, the ability to not get caught is obviously going to be quite a difficult thing over yeah. a long period yeah. of time, you know. You know, and I, I love what you just said, you know, demonizing your brain. It's like these, this is almost it is this thing that is driving him and it, it can sort of drive you crazy. Mm. But that's why, you know, when he's, okay, I don't want to get too much, don't want to give too much away, but, you know, things get thrown in his path. Mm. It's not an easy path for him. And sometimes he, you know, something happens, you know, in the in his second, um, or actually it's his third um, murder where, oh, my God, this I wasn't expecting this. Mm. Mm. And and then, of course, there's Gertrude. I'll just say her name. <laughs> he didn't expect that either. <laughs> and so, you know, I think it's it's actually, there are moments when I really wanted you to feel sorry for him. Yeah. You know, he has to go and get some excedrin because, you know, got hit in the head, you know. <laughs> and and it's like, oh, God, you know, because, of course, obviously, if he took, you know, if he really wanted to just be enraged, he would have, you know, killed the source of his irritation, but he couldn't. Yeah. And so, I, I know, it's it's terrible because somebody said, oh, did you put all the... Um, the rants in, as I call it, to make him more sympathetic. And I thought, oh, gosh, they were so un-PC. Yeah. I thought they would not make him sympathetic. because, But a lot of people go, yeah, totally agree with them. On That's that really effect. weird because those are the bits that I just thought, oh, wow, you know, the stuff that he's saying is kind yeah. of more shocking in a way than, uh, than what he's doing. Than murder, <laughs> murdering people. Well, no, see, that's it. I mean, when you get that front temporal lobe damage, you have a lock of, la loss of impulse control. Mm. And so he just says whatever he wants to say. Mm. And so that's another thing where I had to go, okay, if I was in that position, what would I say about this insane situation here, there, or whatever? You know, to, to, to get that kind of 
where that character is coming from. Yeah. And that's, again, another step on making him as truthful as possible. Um, but whether, I, you know, it's, it's, it's always, I think finding the reality, I'm just reading about <clears throat> a wonderful book that I can't recommend enough called Script Shadow. It started as a blog, but this guy actually just takes all these different movies and he gives you 10 brilliant points about this movie. And the thing that he pounds in over and over again, you have to make your characters as truthful as possible. Mm. And even if there's something in there, it's like what Catherine Tramell says in Basic Instinct. It's suspension of disbelief. Whatever happens, you have to make them, the situation has to be believable. Yeah. Mm. That in real life, that probably wouldn't happen. But as long as it works in context with the character and the world you've created, then you get suspension of disbelief and your audience goes along with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, and that's, for, you know, for Clive, that was inventing, you know, the world of the Cenobites. But you believe in it. Yeah, okay, if I do this, do that, smell of vanilla, the walls <laughs> crack open and you hear the bell tolling and wow, here it comes, you know. Yeah. But that's because he created that universe so perfectly. So all that makes sense in it. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we both thoroughly enjoyed the Venus Complex. And could, just for the sake of our listeners, could you just tell tell us all where you could get it from? Sure. The Venus Complex is available all uh, reputable. Um, stores like <laughs> Amazon, Barnes & Noble, available as a Kindle and as a paperback, high-quality paperback. Mm. <laughs> it is yeah. very nice. And the front cover's amazing. Oh, that's the talented Daniel Serra. Um, he's an Italian artist who's done a, a lot of graphic artwork and illustration for book covers, mm. and he's won two Artists of the Year awards oh, last wow. year. This is Horror and the British Fantasy Society's Award. Oh, uh, well, well, um, deserved as well. I mean, it's wonderful working with him because I sort of said, I, I came up with a kind of a concept of, I, I just want a figure of a, a female on the cover. Mm, yeah. And he came up with this fantastic drawing and then he came up with the artwork and I, I um, sort of made a couple of comments and it was just so fast. It was like in a couple of days and he came up with that amazing image. Mm. Um, and it sort of reflects the, um, one of Michael's dreams of the fridge girl. Mm, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. The blue skin girl. So uh, I just thought it was fabulous. No, I'm just very, very pleased. Mm -hmm. No, it's great stuff. Yeah. And just, just before we go, can we just ask one more question? What, what's, what's <clears throat> next? What's for you for the future? What are you working on next? Um, well, I'm just about to, to do this monster story. Mm -hmm. I've been asked a lot about, again, don't want to give away too much, but about a possible sequel. Yeah, I thought that after I finished. Yeah, uh, well, that's potential. what people say. You know, <laughs> it is sort of up there for one. So um, that's a possibility. I've started, um, a couple of years ago, I started a novel about a vampire with a difference, but because of the whole Twilight thing, as uh -huh. a friend of mine calls them, vanilla vampires. <laughs> uh, the twinkly vanilla vampire thing, I really wanted that to pass over because... Um, I've had a few people read it and they say it's really, you know, imaginative and stuff, but, and it's a very different vampire and that's difficult to mm. achieve nowadays, yeah. Yeah. but I just, I thought I must get back to that as well. So, and also I'm working on a screenplay and a stage play of a musical drama. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. All details can be found on the website. Yeah. It's, it's basically, um, a story set in the ruins of post-war Marseille and it's about vengeance and loss and love and it's it's a drama i mean it does have light-hearted moments in it but um that it's it's a this is a project i've been working on with my co-writers for oh boy a few years now it's mm. a long it's a long one yeah uh because it's music as well it's just mm. oof. but it's interesting seeing okay it's a long-standing musical and that's really interesting but you know les mis has been getting you know, box office, boffo box office. But yeah. of course, it's a, a well-trod story and it's been a very successful musical. So mm. this is a, a totally original musical. So that's difficult. Mm. But um, it's, you know, I just love revenge. If You know, I keep <laughs> thinking about my perfect revenge script. Yeah, this is, um, it's one of my favorite themes. So cool. right. I may just 
you know, obviously writing movies is, is so exciting and interesting, and that's the next step. I'd love to see The Venus Complex as a movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a bit difficult, but hey, we'll just have to see. And um, <clears throat> as far as the musical is concerned, I think it's about time that Quentin Tarantino directs a musical, don't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I'd love to see Definitely. it. <laughs> because it's kind of you know reading this book about screenplay writing just think wow it is an action picture it's got a lot of you know action set pieces in it you know it's set after you know just at the end of the war and then a, a couple years later so it's uh these are the things so it's like movies and short stories and and books that's my future well best of luck with all of it oh thank you very much thank you and um, thank you guys for showing an interest in Hellraiser oh. and, you know. Uh, it's all right. The, it's fine. My work. <laughs> it's our pleasure. <laughs> you know, thanks everybody out there who've shown interest over the years for Hellraiser and the world, the brilliant genius of Clive Barker. And, you know, if you're interested in buying my book, please do. Okay, will do. So thanks again, Barbie. We'll hopefully speak to you again soon. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So there we are. That was our interview with Barbie Wilde. She was lovely, wasn't she? She was. Very nice. And thanks again, Barbie, if you're listening to this, for agreeing to talk to us for a while. Mm. And also, let's just talk briefly, Phil, you and I, about the book itself, because we mentioned to her that we really enjoyed it, and we weren't just saying that. <laughs> it's, it is really good. We would highly recommend it to everyone. It's excellent, yeah. And as you could probably guess from what we were saying, the subject matter in it is possibly not for everyone. So if you are easily offended, it's unlikely you'll listen to this podcast anyway. But <laughs> if, if you are, then it might not be for you. But it is a really good read and it is excellent. It's very well done. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's a really great story. It's so nice to sort of see, you know, everyone from the Hellraiser universe kind of yeah. going off and doing their own things. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone's been really enjoying Nick Vince's book and mm -hmm. uh, Barbie's book and everyone's yeah. doing all this great stuff. It's fantastic, isn't it? It is. It's really good. Yeah. So you should all go out and buy the Venus Complex. It's nice to be able to um, really recommend things. It is, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. <laughs> Marvellous. And so that's it for this podcast. Our next podcast is going to be with you shortly. And it's going to be something a little different. Something that's not technically to do with Hellraiser, but could be if you make it. Is that cryptic enough for you? No. It's going to be about the film Event Horizon, mm. which a lot of people say is quite similar to Hellraiser in a lot of ways. It's got some very similar mythology. And we agree with that, and we both really enjoy it. So we're going to talk about Event Horizon, and we're going to relate it to the Hellraiser world, and basically what would happen if it was a Hellraiser film, basically. Yeah. Wow. It's good fun. So go and watch that again, everyone. It's good. Watch that. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. Brilliant. So once more, please follow us on Twitter at HellraiserCast. Join us on Facebook. And if you want to talk to us, leave any feedback, it's HellraiserPodcast at Hotmail.co.uk. And visit the website, HellraiserPodcast.com. And we'll be back with you very soon for our Event Horizon podcast. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Peter. And thank you all for listening. And thanks, Barbie, again, for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.